we're going to jump into the sermon tonight. It is, uh, we are wrapping up our spiritual disciplines series next week. And so the second to last spiritual discipline that we are going to be teaching about tonight is community and confession. So if you are using a paper Bible, uh, I would love for you to turn to Proverbs. The, one of the texts that we're going to be looking at is Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. Um, and then uh, once you find that, if you're in a paper Bible, maybe you can stick a marker in there. And we're also going to be looking at James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. Um, so kind of just to frame this topic of community and confession uh, I want to kind of start with an illustration. Um, nobody enjoys admitting they've failed or done something wrong. If, you, if I was to ask you personally, just one-on-one, if you get found out for something that you have done wrong, maybe your parents or your guardian comes to you and you're trying to hide something from them and um, they, they know what you've done, we don't like admitting, to, admitting that. We don't like admitting that we failed, and this is especially true if what you did or did not do um, hurts another person. When we've done something wrong, we often feel a few different emotions in that. Sometimes we can feel shame for that action. Sometimes we can feel shame for the thought or the words that we um, have spoken. And if you have a sibling, um, this probably happens a lot to you. Um, it feels really good in the moment to just yell at your brother or sister, right? If they're frustrating you, if they're getting on your nerves, if you've asked them not to do something and they continue to do that, just one of the natural things that comes out of you is just to like nip at them, to yell at them, and probably to say things that you don't actually mean. But in the moment, it feels so good, it feels right, it feels justified, and it feels like this big release of your emotions. Or maybe when you're feeling these big emotions, you take out these feelings in a physical way, uh, maybe on another person, but oftentimes we use our words, we use um, our actions to, to kind of get out these feelings. Um, I can relate to this um, a lot because we have, we have three little kids, if you are unaware, um, some of you do know, but our oldest daughter is five. She just graduated preschool and is gonna be starting kindergarten in the fall, which is pretty insane. Um, and then Hayden is three and Peyton is one. Um, they're sweet, they're loving, and they're kind, but they are also little kids. And we are trying to shape their minds and shape their, help them to deal with their big feelings and their emotions in a healthy and an appropriate way. Um, and so we, we try to, as, as all parents, they try to live intentionally. They try to parent their kids in a way that's going to set them up for success later. But what this does is it's extremely exhausting. It's mentally exhausting. It's physically exhausting. And the parents in the room know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, cool. Thanks, Josh. 
You know what I'm talking about. It's exhausting. So many factors play into um, how you feel as a parent, your energy levels as a parent, uh, how long your rope is at any specific moment in the day. Um, and sometimes even as a parent, your big feelings aren't handled in a way that honors your kids. Um, I want to share just an example with you. I should get open and honest with you. It was about two years ago. Our oldest daughter, Madison, was probably about three years old. Um, and I failed miserably in handling um, and managing my emotions towards Madison. Um, sometimes in our house, bedtime is extremely chaotic. And uh, for whatever reason, some days are just amazing. Like the last couple nights have been awesome. Other nights, it literally feels like it's World War Three or 30 or 40. And, um, and so at the end of a day, you work all day and, um, you know, you're parenting your kids. Uh, sometimes your emotions as an adult are not in the place that they should be. And uh, I'll save you all the details, but like I said, I did not handle my emotions well. Um, I took out my feelings on her and the things that I was feeling directly on her and I responded in ways that were not honoring or loving to her. And I remember very, very vividly, I walked out of their bedroom, Hayden and Madison share a bedroom, um, and I felt this like super heavy like guilt and shame for how I responded to Madison. She's three years old at the time. She's just trying to get out her feelings and emotions as a kid. And um, just to be completely candid with you, I was, I was in the kitchen or the living room, I can't remember, but I just like broke down in tears and I'm sitting on the floor because of just the weight of just like, that's not how I should interact with my kids. Like that's not what my kids deserve. My kids deserve better than that. And they, this is not an example of the way that Jesus handles um, our sin and handles um, us as individuals. And so uh, Megan and I were talking about this, and I said, and it was like, world, like I said, it was like World War III, and I said, I need to go back into their bedroom, which any parent has put their kids down to go back into the bedroom um, is sometimes a bad news. And so I was like, you know what, it doesn't matter. I'm going to go into the bedroom, and I sat down on the floor, and I grabbed Madison, and I, I looked her straight in the eyes, and through the tears, I'm still crying at this point, I said, Madison, I did not handle my feelings in a way that was loving and kind, and will you forgive me? And she gets into my lap, gives me one of the biggest hugs that she's ever given me, and says, I love you, Dad, and I forgive you. And it was in those moments um, like that where your shortcomings are very, very visible to you, but what I, what I received from my three-year-old kid was um, an immense uh, feeling of love and acceptance and forgiveness. Um, when I walked out of their room, I didn't feel this regret because I knew I did what I had to do. And I confessed my sin to my three-year-old. Um, in those moments when we walk out of times where we have sinned against the person or we've sinned against God, we have a choice. Do I keep on as if nothing happened or do I go to that person, admit my wrong and ask for their forgiveness? And too often we choose the first option. We choose pride and we move on without admitting or confessing that we've wronged that person. 
And this is just a setup for us to frame our minds around confession and why this is an important discipline for Christians. And so let's go to the text. Let's stand together, and uh, Grady is going to come and read Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. All right, you may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. It's a very, very simple verse, very, very short. But if we were to kind of put this verse into our own words and kind of summarize, the main thought of this is our confession of sin is where we find forgiveness and mercy from God. So King Solomon, the writer of this proverb, speaks of a person who covers up their sin and how they will not prosper as a person. And the contrast in this text is between the person who conceals their sin and the one who confesses and renounces their sin. uh, Renounce means to forsake, to leave, and to turn from. To confess means to admit and to acknowledge. And so the the writer is revealing to the reader that our human tendency is not to admit and, and confess our wrongs, but it's to conceal and hide them. And I know that you can relate to what the reader is or what the writer is saying. We know that this is a problem because we see it all around us. It's nothing new. At the very beginning of creation, the beginning of the world, we encounter sin entering the world and the response of those who brought the sin into the world. Genesis 3, we see a picture of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And Genesis 3 tells us of how Adam and Eve sinned against God by trusting their own wisdom. And then when the realization was made of what they had done, um, confession was not what happened. So let's read verses 6 through 8. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So ever since this moment, humanity has been trying to cover what is exposed And we've been relying on our own plans to redeem ourselves. And this leads us, like I said, directly into our topic of confession and community. So here's the opening question that we need to ask ourselves as we begin to answer and walk through this text is, why do we need to confess our sin? And I think this is a logical place for us to begin if we're going to teach about the spiritual discipline that we see in the Bible of confession and community. And one one question that I've been um, asked before is this. If Jesus has paid for our sin in full on the cross, why do I need to confess my sin daily? And maybe this is a question that you've asked yourself. And you can think of different, maybe different passages within the Bible. Um, For example, Ephesians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 7, chapter 9, chapter 10. There's all of these verses 
just to name a couple, that talk about Jesus paying the ultimate price for sin on the cross. And so then that leads us, if, you, if you've read or studied your Bible, um, you might know that passages like 1 John chapter 1 exist. So why, if Jesus has paid the ultimate price for sin, why does 1 John 1, 6 through 10 exist? So let's read it. If we claim to have fellowship with him, which is Jesus, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be, here it is, without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, which is Jesus, is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. And so what we see here um, in this text is John speaking of our initial forgiveness of sin or is he talking about a daily confession of sin? And the context of this passage um, lean towards, leans towards John speaking of daily confession. So he's not talking about your initial salvation, asking God for your forgiveness um, from um, hell and from death. He's talking about a daily confession as a Christian. So the question becomes, if Jesus paid the price for our sin and we are redeemed by faith, why does the Christian need to continue to confess our sin? We're going to give a simple explanation, and then we'll dive into it a little bit deeper. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. It says, To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So here, in this passage in Ephesians chapter 1, Hebrews 7, it speaks to the initial forgiveness of our sins through salvation. And this is referencing the truth that when people confess their sin and put their faith in what Jesus has done on the cross, they receive salvation. This means they will no longer face the wrath of God for that sin. Their past, present, and future sin is paid for in what Jesus has done on the cross. And theologians call this positional forgiveness. So the difference between the text in Ephesians and the text in 1 John is that John deals with what is referred to as relational or familial forgiveness. So here's an example of just my family. When my daughters wrong me or sin against me or fall short of what is right, they do not cease to be my daughters. Same goes for you. When you sin against your parents, you do not cease to be uh, kids of your parents. What has happened, though, is the relationship between you and your parents or myself and my kids, it's been compromised. It has not been severed. The confession of that wrong between myself and my kids helps bridge the gap of relational brokenness and is intended to mend that relationship. So in this example, this is a two-way street, like in the very intro of the sermon with me and my kids asking the forgiveness of my daughter, Madison. When I sin against my kids, I must confess that sin to them and seek their forgiveness to mend that relationship. 
So as Christians, as we sin against God, our relationship as sons and daughters of God is not in jeopardy. Our fellowship and our connection, however, are fractured in a way. Our daily confession of our sin is is what works to mend that relationship between God and ourselves. It does something inside of us when we no longer hide our sin, but instead we bring that rebellion to God and there we find mercy and forgiveness. Confession is about aligning our hearts with God and recognizing our deep need for him in our lives. Okay, so far we've spoken exclusively kind of about our confession of sin to God, but the Bible also speaks about confession being done within the community context. And so we're gonna read about that in James chapter five, verses 13 through 20. It says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And then the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Verse 19, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from the death and cover over a multitude of sins. So if you were to summarize this whole passage, I think it's this, the community of believers is to be united in prayer and the confession of sin. The book of James was written primarily for Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, and the purpose of this book was to remind them of what Jesus has done and how that is to change the way that they live their life. And this section talked about the church community being united in their prayers for one another and in their confession of sin. And James is closing the letter, and he ends this letter with an encouragement to pray. He says, if anyone is in trouble, you should pray. If anyone is happy, you should sing songs of praise. If anyone is sick, you should pray for their healing and to confess your sin to each other and pray with them. This is one of the only places in the New Testament where the believer is instructed to confess sin to one another. So within the context of verses 13 through 20, James is teaching about the importance and the power and the prayers of righteous people. He says that these prayers are powerful and effective because they rely on the sovereignty of God and they don't rely on our own plans. And verse 16 begins with a therefore, meaning what, he is, um, what is about to be said, uh, that sentence doesn't make sense. Um, okay, I'll just move on to this. What James is essentially saying is because faith-filled prayers accomplish much in the heart of the believer and because God is ready to pour out his forgiveness on people, the whole community of believers should feel empowered and encouraged to come alongside of each other and confess their sins to one another and pray for one another. One scholar writes this, he says, James instructs believers who are struggling with sin to seek faithful and trusted brothers and sisters in Christ who will intercede for them in their battle with sin. 
He's not suggesting that we confess our sin carelessly to just anyone, but to mature believers who will provide spiritual and practical support. So as we close, how does this confession practically work in my life as a believer? So as we become more sensitive to the sins we commit, how do we create a discipline of confession to God and to those around us? Um, Here's some general principles. I want to give you three principles to follow as you live a life of confession. The first is this. Confession should be made to the one sinned against. Most Christians display a preference for confession in secret before God, even concerning matters which involve other people. To confess to God seems to them to be the easiest way out. So this rhythm of if you sin against a person, confess that sin directly to that person. The next one is distinguish between secret sins and those which directly affect others. J. Edwin Orr continues, he says, if you sin secretly, Confess secretly, admitting publicly that you need the victory, but keeping details to yourself. If you sin openly, confess openly to remove stumbling blocks from those whom you have hindered. The last one is confession should be appropriately specific. Once again, J. Edwin Orr, he goes on, if I made any mistakes, I'm sorry. There's no confession of sin at all. You sinned specifically, so confess specifically. It costs nothing for a church member to admit in a prayer meeting, I'm not what I ought to be. It costs no more to say, I ought to be better, a better Christian. It costs something to say, I have been a troublemaker in this church. It costs something to say, I have had bitterness of heart towards certain leaders to whom I shall definitely apologize. So like I said, as we wrap up, I want us to see the beauty of confession The command to confess our sin is not to bring shame or guilt. Instead, it's to relieve guilt and shame by giving those things over to God. So as we become people who live out lives of confession and love for one another, we continue to show people what it means to live under grace and forgiveness of Jesus. We begin to live out what Jesus said in John chapter 13. It says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you so, that you so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So a way that we express our love for one another is to admit our sins against one another. So I want to leave you with a big idea, and it's this. Confession of sin must be a regular part of a believer's life. So we're going to take a few moments in our small groups, and um, we are going to um, talk about some small group questions. But what I would also encourage you to do is to maybe even just take a moment and to think about your own life. To think about the, the conduct, to think about the thoughts, to think about the things that you've said, maybe even in the last 24 hours, and to pray and to ask God, do I need to repent and do I need to confess that sin to somebody? Is there sin that needs to be conven- uh, uh, confessed to God? I would encourage you to do that. Because in our confession, we mend relationships with one another and we mend relationships with God. And so we're going to jump into our small groups right now. We're going to talk about this on a little bit more practical level and just in a conversation. And so guys are in the back of the room. 
Girls are in the front of the room. Um, high school is on this side. Middle school is on this side. Let's make sure that we get into smaller groups um, so that we don't have to yell across our group and we can kind of keep it not super loud in here. And your small group leader will dismiss you. <laughs> 